Hey, welcome to the Eater Upsell, a part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Daniel Janine. I'm an associate producer here, and I am joined by my co-host, Amanda Clute. Hi, Dan. We are talking about a story today that rocked the restaurant world. It's um, a big report that came out about a week ago on NOLA.com and the Times-Picayune um, from reporter Brett Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the report, 25 women, nine of whom are on the record, allege sexual harassment claims and sexual assault claims against John Besh, his business partner, and various chefs and managers that go unnamed uh, throughout his restaurant group. So we thought it would be amazing to have Brett call in and talk about what went into the report and the eight months he worked on it. I think what's really interesting about stories like these is they take a really long time. So we wanted to talk to Brett a little bit about what went on behind the scenes yeah. because it's not just, oh, all these women come to you all of a sudden and you you break the story. It was months and months of hard work. And we really wanted to expose what goes into something like that, not just the details of the story. So Amanda, if you haven't read the report uh, what spoke to you from it? What are the most important takeaways to listen to when you're going into listening to Brett talk about it? The the accusation against John Besh is that he coerced a woman into a sexual relationship with him, and he admitted he admitted to having a relationship with uh, someone who reported to him, but he said it was um, consensual. But there are all these other accusations going up and down the chain that speaks to this kind of aggressive and almost dangerous culture throughout a lot of the restaurants. And the lack of reporting structure, if there is a problem, I think led to a lot of that. And this is something that we hear about a lot in the restaurant industry. It's it's so pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing like this has ever come out. To get a better sense of how big this story is and how big John Besh is and who John Besh is in that local community, I wanted to talk to Stephanie Carter, our New Orleans editor for Eater. So when this big investigation came out last Saturday, what was your first thought? Had you heard any rumors about this at all? I had heard rumors about it um, as early as 2008. I did not know if it was still going on. I was told in 2008 by someone that he, I hadn't heard about the sexual harassment allegations, but there were rumors that he had relationships outside of his marriage. Um, But I also heard that, you know, now that his restaurant group was growing, he had too much to lose and had sort of shut that part down. But those were just rumors in 2008. And I, I personally didn't hear anything after that. But a number of people have always said that this is um, common knowledge that it was still going on. So to some people in the industry, this was like an open secret. It was an open secret. So we wanted to uh, tell our our listeners a little bit about who John Besh is. And since you cover the scene so well, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like what a big deal he is in New Orleans um, and and his restaurant group. Yeah, so John Besh is a high-profile New Orleans chef who's won a lot of awards, and he sort of bills himself as a native son who's committed to preserving um, Louisiana foodways. And he's known for a number of restaurants, um, which until this year has been growing. And this year is the first year we've seen it sort of contract even before the sexual harassment allegations. He built up a big name for himself rebuilding the city after Hurricane Katrina. Is that right? Yeah. So before Hurricane Katrina, he was a well-known chef for Restaurant August. And he'd made national headlines for himself already. He'd appeared on a lot of top 10 lists. After Hurricane Katrina, he sort of 
came into town with a boat and a gun and was known for feeding people red beans until the city got back on its feet. And um, things really shifted for him after Katrina. He became synonymous with the recovery efforts in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, He sort of became synonymous with the city itself. And um, his restaurant group also started growing quickly right after Katrina. But... um, I think that that was a big turning point for him. As from what I can tell, he's known as kind of this really good guy, family man. I know he's he's a Catholic, and he put his kids on the cover of his book that's about family recipes. Yeah. I mean, he's really branded himself as a family man. One of his cookbooks is called uh, John Besh Family Table, and he has a cooking show based on that book that's filmed in his kitchen. One of his restaurants is named after one of his children, you're right. He's a Catholic and he's known for showing up at church and supporting it. According to people that I've talked to, he jumps in is always really helpful when the church needs help or any of those kind of things. I mean, he's known as a church man and a family man. And what has the fallout been to the Besh group? The fallout has been swift and it's continuing. Directly after the allegations came to light in the Times-Picayune story, Harris Casino immediately dropped his name from their New Orleans casino steak restaurant. It was called Besh Steak. And they're in the process of renaming that. His TV shows on public television were dropped nationwide. And of course, there's been the national news covering this story and um, all the all the parts of it um, pretty heavily since Saturday. And I, I just heard today Top Chef is reviewing an episode that he was going to be in? Yeah, Top Chef says it's evaluating an episode that's supposed to be in the next season. According to them, he filmed one cooking challenge, but they still haven't said exactly what they're going to do with that. What is the feeling around New Orleans now? What are you hearing? People I've talked to are, I think they're surprised at the extent of it. They hadn't heard the rumors before. And I think one thing that the city's really upset about is John Besh is so synonymous with New Orleans. He was someone that a lot of people were really proud of. He was sort of an ambassador. And um, it feels, you know, a city that's worked so hard um, in recovery post-Katrina now has, you know, this sort of man who's emblematic of the city who is accused of doing just really horrible things. And I think that it's not just a blow to the best restaurant group. Some people see it as, you know, a blow to the city. And I think that really upsets people. That was Stephanie Carter, editor of Eater New Orleans. We'll be right back after the break with Brett Anderson of NOLA.com, The Times-Picune. In need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools. Smarter tools. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free... That's right, free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat one more time to get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. And here is Brett Anderson. When did you first start hearing about this? When did your first source come to you? Or when did you decide this was something you wanted to start looking into? The first tip I got was last February. That's kind of where we started the clock ticking when we called it an eight-month-long investigation. It was during Mardi Gras season. And a friend of mine told me of a mutual acquaintance who had worked at the Best Restaurant Group and had just quit. And um, my memory of that tip was that, you know, he just suggested it was something he thought I should make a phone call on. And that person who quit was a woman, is a woman named Lindsay Reynolds, who is a named source in the story and who ultimately filed a EEOC complaint against the, against the company. Mm -hmm. Um, and she had resigned an email, um, that she sent to Octavio John and I think some other managers where she told them that she felt that you know, that their culture, uh, victimized women and in so many words. And so I talked to her about that and it, you know, it was one of those things where I, f I just felt like I needed to make a few more phone calls to, to see if I could find out if she was right or not, you know, or, or find out to my satisfaction that it wasn't worth looking into, mm -hmm. you know, I mean that it wasn't worth looking into further. Um, you know, she had sent out this email and, you know, I mean, you guys work in new media. I yeah. mean, I, I, you know, I thought that email was going to show up on Facebook someplace and I wanted to be up to speed on it yeah. if that happened. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, like, absolutely. Which is like kind of a, a shallow reason, <laughs> but like, you know, you work, I work at a, you know, I work I mean, at a, a story. modern news organization. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I sort of felt like I wanted to know what this was, but the more phone calls I made, um, the more it sort of became clear to me that w there there seemed to be some truth to what she was claiming. And, you know, the basically how I went about it is if I talked to one person, I would listen to what they have to say. And if it seemed appropriate, I would ask them, like, do you know anyone else who's had similar experiences who you think might be willing to speak with me? And after a certain period of time when I'd made enough phone calls where it where it seemed to me that people in the restaurant community kind of knew what I was asking about. And certainly people at the best group did. I started getting people that would approach me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I memorably had a, a woman approach me in a coffee shop. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and, and she ended up being an on the record source. I, I mentioned that because like as a reporter, when it just, when it's, when the sourcing starts to seem, feel easy, that's another piece of information. <laughs> yep, absolutely. When did you decide you had enough to to go forward and present this to to the Besh group? So in the sort of beginning of the summer, um, I had been speaking with our editor in chief about this and our um, you know our managing editor, and it reached a point where they said, "Well, we need to start talking to to Manuel Torres, who is like our investigations editor, who really." you know, deserves a lot of credit for, for getting, bringing this thing to light. And, and he, I was telling him what I was hearing and I told him, you know, kind of what I had in terms of documentation and so forth. But at that point I didn't have anyone on the record and he's like, well, we can't do this without people on the record, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, 
you need to go back to all your sources and see if there's anyone willing to do it. And, and we had thought that if I had two or three, we might have something to work with. And then I ended up getting nine. And mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of feel like it's worth pointing out that these women committed to allowed, you know, committed to me that they would let me use their names in the story well before the Harvey Weinstein story broke. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you know, if that changed of, anything. It didn't change anything in my reporting, which isn't to, you know, denigrate that particular project. I mean, I think that the stuff in both the Times and New Yorker was outstanding journalism and reporting, and it was shocking and and all of that. But um, I just don't. I think it took these women a great deal of courage to um, come forward and and to to decide that they were going to put their names to their allegations, and but they didn't. You know, this idea that they might have had sort of quote unquote cover from the Weinstein investigation just isn't true because they'd made their commitment before that happened. And I just don't want to diminish the courage (laughs) that it took uh, for them to do that. Did it fast track the publication at all? Was was there pressure on you like, okay, we need to ride this wave. We have all this information at all. It it was really our, our approach was that once we had, you know, like basically I had to in the sort of summer, late summer, I felt like I needed to put together, you know, sort of a, a memo in some ways uh, to my editors and our lawyers about what I had to see if, if they thought we could go forward. And they did. And, um, and, and that's when I requested the interviews and our approach from then was like, once we get their response to what we want to get them to respond to, um, we want to get it published as soon as possible. I mean, our, what, and what was the sit down like when they finally granted you an interview? Um, it, you know, it was uh, it was actually, I, I think, professional. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, they, to their credit, met me, and um, it was John Octavio, their lawyer, and then two PR people, and. And then myself and my colleague, Catherine Sayer, accompanied me. And um, the, you know, I, I think that they they sat there for two hours and answered every question that we had to the, you know, to the best of their ability um, at the time. And for the most part, like, and uh, I mean, I... I <laughs> I would have rather been doing something else. Right. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't <laughs> wasn't the funnest you know, day I of your life. Of <laughs> yeah, I mean, all, not, no one in there would have you know wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you consider that, it was fairly civil. I mean, you know, New Orleans is a small town. I know John and Octavio. <laughs> I, I I don't know. And they, they, from what I could tell from the statements in your piece and and the follow up was that he admitted to having a quote unquote consensual relationship with one of his employees, but that's about it. And the rest of it, they, they seemed in disbelief about. Um, yeah, I don't really feel like I should comment on their comments. I mean, uh, yeah, it is, they are what they are. You mentioned John Besh and Octavio Mantilla in your report, but it sounds like there were other men who, who could have been named. Yeah, there, you know, I mean, the, 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 the stories I heard from, you know, coming out of the restaurants, um, predominantly had to do with staff members, managers, chefs, um, working in those restaurants who, you know, my sources were telling me, um, 
you know, harass them and other employees and, um, and then managers who, when, you know, when these women brought, in some instances, these women said that they complained about the harassment and that, that in a nutshell, the, the managers didn't do anything about it. So, you know, in the course of my reporting, I heard about a lot of different people who, um, you know, who in some ways were being accused of sexual harassment who weren't John or Octavio themselves. But my position as I was reporting this piece and ultimately as I wrote it was that John and Octavio were, um, you know, they, they own this company. John's mm-hmm. name is on the door. And, you know, and these guys did not put systems in place that would allow people to safely report this sort of harassment and this sort of discrimination. Sorry, this is a 1,200-person company, and they don't have a HR department at all. Yeah, you know, and, and, and so I, I, it was my position that they, you know, they were the people that sort of were, were best to approach to answer to all this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there were, you know, I did hear complaints about the behavior of both John and Octavia themselves. And um, there was a suggestion by many of my um, sources that they felt a bad example was being set at the top and that it influenced the way that their superiors and their managers acted towards them. And there was a, a feeling that they almost encouraged this this kind of culture, this quote-unquote bro culture and this culture of harassment. I, You know, I, I don't have much reporting that it suggests that they directly encouraged it. I mean, I, you know, I guess some people did, but I probably, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> you know, I, that story or the story that I wrote, you know, that's 6,000 words. Um, but it contains only a sliver of what I heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess I'm just saying, I, 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 I've been, you know, we really tried to, um, you know, apply the highest sort of journalistic standards to this in terms of verification. And, um, you know, that's all I'll say. I, I, you know, I, 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 it does strike me, you know, when you talk about a culture that's unhealthy, um, you know, someone is ultimately responsible for that culture. Yeah. And it's my position that, John and Octavio are responsible for that culture. And I also got a sense from your piece that, and this didn't surprise me, that it's it's become normalized to the point where when you were asking Oct- Octavio for a comment, he's like, oh, I, I don't remember touching her in that way. And it could be that this is just like normal behavior for, for people in this group and normal behavior um, for a lot of the chefs there. Um, you know, the, the word normalized did come up a lot in my conversations with these women. Where, you know, they would, you know, a lot of these people I talked to for multiple times and for a long time, (laughs) you know, they would talk to me and in the course, over the course of the conversation, sort of come to this realization of how they had accepted this as normal, accepted these conditions as normal, accepted a certain kind of, um, you know, way of speaking, way of touching, way of behaving as normal as the way it sort of had to be if they wanted to succeed in that particular line of work. And, um, you know, I, I think that perhaps, you know, this story does seem to have resonated a bit. And I think one of the reasons is that there are a lot of people in the world who are women who have waited tables. 
You know, there's a lot more of those than there are former Hollywood actresses. And um, I, I think that it's just the people, you know, you read this stuff, even the really gross stuff. I think people pro like, I'm sure a lot of people recognized their own experiences and the experiences of these women. Um, and, and I think that speaks to this idea of normalization, <laughs> you know, the sort of universality. It's, it's not common in a group of their size, but it is common in smaller restaurant groups to not have a formal HR person or a manager who you can report these things to. And their comment to you is that, oh, well, these women should have gone to, to other women in the company and told them. But I think that kind of, um, that's not really a great way of doing things. Like you need to have a formal way of, of reporting issues. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that one particular defense or I don't know what you would call it, the, <laughs> the, their answer, you know, of like, well, if these women had a problem, you know, why didn't they go to one of the other women? Or like, you know, I think in some ways the existence of women in the corporate office who hadn't quit and had a complaint was proof enough to John and Octavia, I mean, this is what they sort of suggested to me. It was proof enough that these allegations were false. And to me, that spoke to a, a, a degree of um, problematic and, and I think destructive naivete on their part. You know, I mean, if, if that was what made them feel comfortable that they didn't have any problems, it you know, I, I think that is um, conduct unbecoming of people who run a 1,200-person company. What were some of the most surprising anecdotes that you or, or pieces that you uncovered over the course of this investigation? Yeah, I mean, you know, to the point about a normalized, you know, what was normalized in this particular culture, um, you know, there I had been told by a number of um, different uh, female employees, all, you know, young female employees in their twenties, um, who worked in the corporate office and, and went to work days around the pool of a superior. Um, and, you know, so it essentially meant that they were going to work in swimsuits and, um, I don't, you know, I, when I brought that up, to in the in the interview with John and Octavio, I don't get the sense that they were expecting to be asked about that. That they didn't find it weird. Um, that was the impression that I got. As we started to have the conversation, I think it perhaps dawned on them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I don't think that. It, it, from my reporting does not suggest that anyone in the office was compelled to blow the whistle on it. Right. You know, I mean, it was a manager arranging it and, and it was sort of done in the spirit of what I understand, like fun, you know, we're going to brainstorm and we're going to hang out at the pool and we're going to have some drinks and maybe some of the guy chefs are going to show up. Right. 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 The, but I do feel like that is an example of, the kind of behavior that had become normalized there. I mean, that was something that was, you know, that came out of the corporate office. Um, there was, you know, there was a quote in the story that made it into the story about this idea of happy chefs make happy food or good food. And that is something that I'd had heard from my sources that managers would 
sort of speak about that a lot. And the implication was that, um, you know, you do what you had to do to keep the chefs happy. <laughs> um, Post-publication, um, have more people been coming out of the woodwork to you about stories like this? I know the response has been pretty, pretty big in the restaurant industry. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of people uh, approaching me, you know, digitally, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know. Like, do you think this is the tip of the things. iceberg in terms of stories like this? I don't, you know, I, I don't want to speculate. I, I just, I, I think that one thing, I, you know, that I do believe is that after having spent the amount of time I did on this, um, is there, I, I think there is a lot, there are, I think there are a lot of stories to tell, but it's hard to turn them into, to fair journalism. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you I, know, you, you gotta get people on the record. You gotta, you know, you, you gotta be people that are willing to, it, it's, it's still, it's still true that stepping forward, even though we're seeing kind of like this cultural moment, you know, with the me too and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff, uh, which I, you know, I think is great. You know, that's different than talking to a reporter and becoming a part of a news story and what could become, you know, part of a, like a very serious accusation. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I, I do believe that this is, I do believe that this problem, you know, exists not just at the restaurant group, but best restaurant group. I did, you know, the great majority of people I spoke to had worked in restaurants before that weren't owned by John Besh. And the great majority of those people would say something to the effect of, you know, I'm used to this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's not, it's not like I, you know, it's like, I'm no, I'm not some fragile doll here, you know, but, um, I asked all of those people who had worked in other restaurants, if what they experienced at the Besh group was different than what they experienced elsewhere. And all but like one or two said, yes, it was a magnitude worse. Yeah. I think that's a really, really important to say, but, but I do think there's other stories to tell at other places. It's, but I'm at a lot, it's sort of hard for me to know practically how this is all going to play out in journalism, you know, in the media, because I, I, I don't know. I feel overwhelmed with all the stories that people tell me they have to tell me. And what I can do with them. You know, I mean, the, the story that we put out took a lot of effort. And like I told you earlier, it was just a sliver of what we heard. I mean, I have mm-hmm. sources that are disappointed in me for not getting what they told me into the story. You know, right. there is, I think a, there's, there's something, there's a scale here that I'm not sure how to navigate. And I think, yeah, that's why I think this is such a commendable piece and, and much credit goes to you and your whole team and the newspaper for supporting you in in all of this and letting you investigate it out over months and months and months. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, to that point, we, you know, we're the, the news media is going through a tough period. And, and I think I have to say that there was never, ever a point in which my bosses suggested to me that I was wasting my time. You know, there was never a, like, it was just full support from the get go. And, um, 
you know, I mean, there's people in our community that thought I quit because <laughs> I, you know, I sort of disappeared for so long. And, um, at the, you know, I, this story is getting a lot of attention, but it, it, it would, it required a lot of resources. And, and at the end of the day, I might've come up empty handed, you know, I mean, I might've come, I might've not been able to get any of this in the paper. Yeah. You know, and you need like, to have that, that was always a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was always a possibility. That's like an extra level of support when it was like, not that they only just were they behind me. I also didn't feel pressure to come up with something no matter what the longer it took. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, absolutely. I didn't feel as if I needed to compromise in order to validate the resources we'd already invested. And which is important. <laughs> absolutely. Um and, you know, and that just speaks to, I think, the experience in our newsroom. They, you know, we have a lot of young people, but we have a lot of people that have been around a while, too. Um, and, and, uh, and on that note, we should let our audience subscribe to the newspaper <laughs> and keep supporting ins- institutions <laughs> yeah, like we'll this. We'll deliver to Brooklyn. Yeah, they'll, <laughs> they'll send it. <laughs> I think they can. I think that's actually a good segue. We should plug. Uh, can they subscribe at nola.com? I'm sure they can. Uh, you know, they, they should if they they should go to nola.com. And if they want to read the story, they can go there or they can also go to. It's pinned at the top of my Twitter feed, mm-hmm. which is Brett Eats. Brett Eats with um, two T's. And, yeah, two T's. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I would say if you don't live in New Orleans, the, uh, support your local newspaper. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think I don't think people in outside New Orleans should subscribe to the Times Picayune. But, uh, <laughs> but they, I'm sure they have. You know their what I mean? Like, paper. that's like to me, that's the message. Like, mm-hmm. if, if you're not here, bear in mind that that your local newspaper has people that want to be good <laughs> and yep. want to serve and you. You can't do this kind of reporting just just on Twitter. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to share the behind the scenes look at the story. I think it's it's really important and um, you did really good work there. So thank you for the work and for coming on. Well, thank you for your interest and for having me. It's good to talk to you. So, Amanda, that was Brett Anderson. Do you ever find it off putting on Twitter and social media when you see people or journalists aggressively trying to scout for these stories it's it's hard because when i i asked in my newsletter for people to share stories with us and it was hard for me because it did feel kind of vultury or Mm -hmm. like jumping on the bandwagon and especially when these stories are so sensitive to just be so desperate and you know competitive about it feels very off but at the same time you do want to make sure your contact information is out there so if people have a story they know how to get in touch with you so it's it's a service to people, but it's also can feel like we're all competing with the other journalists out there who are tweeting out their phone numbers, like who can tweet out their phone number the fastest. So that's, um, I don't know, it's a little complex. How has your approach and the approach of Eater changed in the last few weeks following Weinstein, following this investigation? Sure. Um, we've definitely had to think a lot more actively about these types of stories, especially as people are starting to reach out to share them with us. Uh, not we're not going to be able to cover every story. A lot of times people will write in and they want to be anonymous and the restaurant uh, is anonymous. They won't name the chef. Uh, they don't have any evidence or material. So that's kind of tough. And other times there's material, there are multiple people, uh, there's something to work with there. Uh, we're definitely committed to putting the resources behind reporting those kinds of stories out. Uh, in the last week we've been 
trying to figure out how we want to solicit stories from people and how we can do it safely. So we are working on setting up a secure drop for people so they can submit things to us without it being tracked back to them. Um, we're signing up for Signal, which is a way you can send encrypted messages uh, because a lot of this stuff is very sensitive and you don't want people to be able to sue these victims and then have all the material that we have discoverable in court. Thanks everyone for listening to the Eater Upsell. If you like this episode, you could do us a huge favor by rating, subscribing, all that stuff, and maybe pass it off to a friend or two or all your friends. If you'd like to get in contact with Amanda, she is Amanda at Eater. If you have any suggestions for the show, we are upsell at eater.com. And thanks again to Brett Anderson and Stephanie Carter. Thanks to Carrie Clements, Miles Ewell, Pedro Alvara, and Paige Bethman for all their studio support. And thanks to our executive producer, Maureen Giannone. We'll see you next week.